invite you to turn with me in God's holy word this morning to 1 Kings, the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17. We'll read the entire chapter together, verses 1 to 24. Our focus this morning is on verses 17 to 24. 17 to 24, under the theme, From Death to Life. This is a sermon in a series I'm preaching on God's ministry to his people in the life of through the life of the prophet Elijah. And, uh, and this is actually the first of two messages on these verses. So we will not be covering everything in these verses. There's much still that will be left unsaid, especially concerning the prophet's prayer and the resurrection of the son. But I trust the Lord will bless um, his word to us this, this morning. From verses 17 to 24. We begin though with verse 1 then. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab. As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. There shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying. Get away from here. And turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Sarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he, had came, when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as he was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of the Lord of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. And now begin the words of our text. Verse 17 and following, now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. 
So she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on this child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his son. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. May God bless his holy word to our hearts. Beloved in Christ, I trust that some, if not many of you, know what the meaning of the name of Elijah signifies. It means, my God is Yahweh. Can you imagine having a name like that? Like a name in English that conveyed such a statement? A name like Jesus is my Savior. Can you imagine when people in the world would have to talk to you and call you by name? Every time they would say that name, they could hardly avoid thinking of your God, what you believe, who you believe in. In a real sense, we sometimes miss that, but in a real sense, the name Elijah bore and there's a lot of other names like that in scripture that have such wonderful meaning. His name was designed, in a sense, to deflect attention away from himself to his God. My God is Yahweh. My God is Jehovah. And you know, as Christians, even if we don't have a name like that, that's really how our lives should be. Our lives should be lived and our words should be spoken in such a way that we deflect attention away from ourselves to our God. We really want people, we should want people, if they've had meaningful interaction with us, to go away from us, not thinking so much what a great person he or she is, but rather what a God he or she must serve. 
And this is really what our first point is about this morning, here in this chapter, is realizing where our attention is to be focused. Where is the attention, our attention being directed here in these verses? You see, we have a propensity, we have a tendency to focus on the character, the human character. And you can almost be forgiven if I would ask you, who's the main character here? And many of you might say, Elijah, the prophet. Because that's true in terms of being a human character, perhaps. But what we need to understand is that these chapters and this section is not designed to be like a biography for you and me about Elijah. We don't know much about Elijah before he suddenly appears full grown before the king with his message of chastisement. You see, this isn't about the Elijah of God. This is about the God of Elijah. Before whom he stands. Before whom you and I stand. They reveal his character. His person. You read these, when you honestly and read these verses and you think about them for a little bit, you realize he's a God who... Who's holy. This reveals that he's holy. His attribute, his characteristic of holiness is clear because he hates sin. He hates rebellion in his people. He takes it seriously, not lightly. He's a God who judges sins and disciplines his people for them. It also reminds us of his attribute of faithfulness. He's true to himself. He's true to his word. He keeps his word. How so? Well, back in Deuteronomy 11, and Elijah, of course, knew this all too well, and he based his prayer on it, but, but back in Deuteronomy 11, God warns his people. He warned his people, and he did it in other places too. Beware, beware, my people, lest your hearts turn be deceived and you turn away and you serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. And here it unfolds just like that. Why? Because God is faithful. God is true to his word. But these chapters also, and these verses also reveal that God is not just a God who's holy. Thank, thank God He is holy. But thank God He's also a God of mercy. A God of love. A God of compassion. A God who cares about the widow and the fatherless and the suffering. He's also a God who's ready to bless even any foreigner. Like this widow of Seraphath who puts faith and trust in God's word and in God's power. That's true in, even in the Old Testament scriptures and 
Moabites. We think of examples like Rahab, the Canaanite, right? Or Ruth, the Moabitess, and, and, and many others. So he's holy and just, but he's also compassionate and he's merciful. God's character is being spelled out here. This is about the God of Elijah. It spells out not just his attributes, but also his works. We're reminded he's the God of creation. Israel had a Baal problem. If you read the verses that just precede chapter 17, the last verses of chapter 16, you know that this is why God had to visit his people with chastising discipline, with a heavy hand, because they had given in to the worship and the idolatry of Baal with all of its sexual immorality. But God revealed himself as the God of creation, the God with the power to withhold or give the rain over against all the pagan ideas that Baal was the God in control of the rain, because that's who they said Baal was. He was the God of fertility. He was the God who made life come forth. He's the God who brought the rain down. And they were all worshiping Baal faithfully. But guess what? Faith, Baal couldn't bless them for it because Baal had not the power to. God was revealing himself to be the God of creation and teaching his people that Baal had nothing to do with it. And he would go on also to show himself to be the God of the resurrection. Again, in contrast to the God Baal, whom the pagans believed was the God of resurrection power. He supposedly died every year. They had weird ideas in their paganism about their gods. This God could die every year and then be resurrected every year in time for the planting of the season. And he needed the help of his consort and that to, in order to do that. But God is going to show his people here in the life of this lowly widow, Sarapheth, who really is the God of the resurrection. You see, this is not about Elijah. This is about your God and my God. This is about Elijah's God. This is so that you and I will be bold and courageous and, and rejoice to be able to say, with Elijah, my God is Yahweh. My God, too, is Jehovah in front of the world we, believe in, we, we live before. But he, if he's the God of creation, that also means that he's the God of providence. He not only creates things, but he sustains it by the rain, by the sunshine, by providing for his creation in every way. And he does it, this, this, these chapters teach us, not arbitrarily, but the way he does it is with an eye for the good of his own people. He's in control of the birds, even of the air. Not just the sweet songbirds, but even the greedy ravens. He's the God of creation. He's the God of providence. He provided daily bread and meat for Elijah and water from the little brook. 
Then he expanded that provision in a beautiful way by, and it was a further sign of God's displeasure with, with Israel that, that he called Elijah out of Israel to this widow of Sidon, of Serapheth. But there he still showed his, his power of providence by providing for this widow of Serapheth and her son through a bin of flour that never went empty and a jar of oil that never ran dry until, went dry until the rain fell again on the earth. He's the God of creation. He's the God of providence. And soon he will reveal himself as the God of resurrection life as well. But, and here we come into our second point, that God's word is designed to teach us here, that path to resurrection glory and the path to knowing the resurrected Christ is a path that leads us first by the way of seeing and understanding sin and misery and the curse and death and why it's there. The pathway to resurrection glory, beloved, is a pathway that for you and me lies through the way of suffering, even through the pain of death and the sorrow associated with it. So look at this widow then. She is experiencing, we find her, in verse 16, and we find her experiencing daily this amazing provision of God, right? Every day she's got this bin of flour, it doesn't, doesn't go empty. Even when she bakes a big cake or whatever, there's still some left every time. A jar of oil that never runs dry no matter what she pours out of it for the day. So she has a miracle, a daily miracle that she can see, that she can smell, that she can feel, that she can taste every single day happening in her house. And so you can understand that this widow could easily have thought that her days of trouble and sorrow were over forever. She's got even this holy man of God who was instrumental in bringing this amazing miracle into her home. She has him living every day under her roof. You would think, you would think that she's about as safe and secure physically and spiritually, along with her son, as possible. And here perhaps it's good for a moment to remember what our catechism says. It's not a catechism sermon, but to remember what our catechism says so beautifully about the providence of God, what it involves. Providence is the almighty and everywhere present power of God by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean, Years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity 
and poverty. All things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Did you get that? God's hand of providence is not only experienced in good times and in good things. It's also at work in painful, adverse things. In the drought, in the lean, in the sickness, in the poverty. And we can add to that in the light of our text here in the time of death. God's providence is at work. And as I was preparing this message, I couldn't help but think about Psalm 23, where the psalmist shows that he knows all about the providence of God in good times. When he writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. All beautiful things, wonderful blessings. But he also knew that this providence of God was there to help him even in the valley of the shadow of death, even in the face of evil, which he would not have to fear because he knew that his fatherly hand was in control and watching over and keeping him. Even there, he would not have to fear because he could say, you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. All of this, all of this, beloved brothers and sisters, is to be a powerful reminder here to you and me that no matter how healthy we and our loved ones might be today, no matter how economically secure we may feel with our weekly paycheck, our good job, our growing retirement fund, and even no matter how spiritually blessed we may feel right now or how strong our faith may be because of so many blessings from God in many ways, it won't always be this way. It doesn't always stay that way in this world which is under the curse of sin, a curse of sin that is still residing even within our own hearts and lives. Just think now for a moment of Elijah. We thought about the widow. We'll come back to her, but think about Elijah even. He's been so blessed. He's got this roof over his head, this room that the widow provides, and he has God first, right? Giving him meat and drink from bread from the ravens and from the brook. And now this miracle every day is providing for him as well. And he's living in this house where this his small quote congregation, this widow and her son, of course, are so deeply thankful to him and appreciative of him as God's messenger. Beautiful. Providences, blessed providences. You'd almost think what could go wrong. But suddenly into that peace. Enters a painful tension. 
the one who had been so grateful to him, now suddenly turns to him with a fierce accusation. What have I to do with you, O man of God? In other words, why don't you leave me alone? Have you come to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? You know, sometimes an office bearer who labors long and faithfully and fruitfully can just suddenly find that someone or who, who he thought was close and appreciative suddenly turns a finger of blame against them over some issue they don't see eye to eye on or over something they feel a minister, an elder, or a deacon is at fault at or something that touches a family member personally. And that's so hard. I just recently had a minister ask me to remember him in prayer for this very reason. He is having this kind of experience. This is what happens here to Elijah. Suddenly brought from calm into a storm. Blessed providence, but also painful providence. Those big question marks. And yet his suffering is real, but it's light compared to the widow, right? Because she has only one child. Humanly speaking, her son was everything she had in the way of human comfort, companionship, provision for the future. This man of God obviously wasn't going to stay with her forever or for a long time, long term. It was unlikely. And now suddenly her son is is gone. Can you fathom? I can't fathom the grief of such a lonely widow who loses her only and beloved son. There's such a contrast. It almost it hurts between verse 16 and verse 17. Verse 16 says, The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry. Yet the very next thing we read is, The son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious, there was no breath left in him. It took his breath away. That means he died. Her son's life is over before you know it. And, and you step back and you can't figure it out. This is the son who's been so miraculously fed and whose life has been preserved with his mother by Elijah's God with this amazing daily miracle. And now he's cut off from the land of the living. And it doesn't make sense. Again, love it just to apply it to ourselves. Remember, though we are richly blessed in so many ways, and we ought not to forget it, even in the darkest circumstances, yet while we're on earth, we're not immune to painful providences, to tears, disease, pain, disappointment, Death still comes our way. Only in the next life will we, will we be entirely free of these things. But God has purpose in them all. God is working for his glory, for our strengthening, for our learning. You know, Psalm 34, 19 even tells us that not few, but many are the afflictions of the righteous. But what we need to always hold on to 
is that these times of pain and suffering are not divorced from, even when we can't see the connection, they are not divorced from the grace and love of the Father. He promises to use them for our good. When I was preparing this message, I happened also to be leading a class, and we were using a series by Dr. Ferguson on mem membership in the church and what it means. And we were on a chapter entitled um, Enduring Hardship. And in that, in that video clip, Dr. Ferguson powerfully emphasized the truth of Romans 5. What does Romans 5 say? Romans 5 says, Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces Character character produces hope. And he proceeded to point out that those who never have to suffer and never have to face deep challenges, generally, there may be a, an odd exception, but generally lack a depth of character that is evidenced in those who've gone through suffering, just as God's word says. And he could testify to that in his own experience in the churches he served, and so can I. But here's our deep comfort, not that our afflictions are gonna be few and minor, but that God delivers him out of them all. God has purpose, blessed purpose, even in painful providences. And he uses them to transform us to strengthen us, not for the worse, but for the better. Maybe it's to just make us realize how weak we are so that we draw closer to him for strength. Maybe it's just like in, in the terms of Job, who was a blameless man, but God wants to glorify himself by showing that the faith of Job can stand even the most intense pressures and awful providences to show the power of faith. But not least of all, we also know that these providences help us to set our minds and hearts not on the temporary things of this earth that can come and go and on our ability to enjoy them that can come and go as well, but to set our hearts more on eternal joys than the temporary ones. The, the scriptures just replete with examples. Elijah is an example he went through tough times. We already talked about it. He would go through even tougher times, right? He'd go through such a tough time after the mountaintop experience and then his persecution of Jezebel and his disappointment that the king and the queen weren't transformed by this amazing testimony to the powerlessness of Baal and the power of God. And, and yet he's persecuted that, that he runs away and he wants to, he literally wants to die. He wants to give up. He thinks he's the only one left. He goes through a deep, deep, tough time. He's not the only one. Job, we already mentioned. How, who can imagine the, 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 what he suffered? But God had purpose. Job couldn't understand it all. How about Joseph? Boy, did he ever suffer. Sold into slavery by his own brothers, right? Working faithfully for Potiphar, being praised and uplifted, and all of a sudden... Everything goes south under this false accusation from his wife and then his faithful service in the prison and, and his hopes getting high because the butler, you know, was, was going to tell the king about uh, his, his 
what, what he had done for him and, and everything. But, but then all of a sudden that goes south and, and so on. Painful providences. David, right? You'd think he sly, slays the Goliath of the Philistines. You think that from then on forever, the people are going to honor him and love him and everything's going to be smooth. Next thing you know, he's like a hunted animal, hunted by his own father-in-law. Next thing you know, his own band of men turn against him because their wives and kids are captured and they're ready to kill him, stone him. And you know the problems he went through in his own house. Painful providences. But God was working. Working for his glory. Working for David's welfare, even when he went through the furnace. The widow's furnace of affliction seems unbearable. All she can think of is that God must be punishing her for her past sins. Which would have involved the worship of Baal. Which would have involved gross immorality. Elijah's God must have turned against her for it. There's no breath left in him. And she cries out in protest. What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? Her complaint is against God. But Elijah is God's messenger. So he gets the brunt of it, right? Is her protest right? Is it justifiable? It is understandable. It's actually easy to understand, if we're honest. After all, she knows that the famine was because of God disciplining his people. He's a holy God. So he must be disciplining her too because of her sins. But there's something wrong here, isn't there? We can't explore this fully, but we'll explore it a little bit. All is not well with her, right? There's no calm attitude. There's no humility before God right now. There's a fierce accusation. Does this mean she's not a believer? Yet. Don't conclude that. Don't forget the faith she showed already by putting herself and her son in the hands of Elijah and Elijah's God. She trusted all that Elijah said. She was exceedingly blessed by God for it. But as we see in the lives of God's people, faith sometimes withers under painful providences. It would have been wonderful to read that the widow just came to Elijah crying and asking him, him to pray for her and to help her understand why this had happened. What would have been wonderful was just to see her humbly asking God to somehow work this for good for her soul and help him to be glorified even in this furnace. But instead we find her lashing out at Elijah and lashing out at Elijah's God who'd come to be her God too. So, so she's struggling, really struggling with the goodness of God here. She's trying to rationalize things by saying, okay, he must be punishing me for my sins of an earlier life. But the problem with that, beloved, the theological problem with that is, with her way of thinking, is that God has already made her an object of his amazing grace. He saved her and her son despite her past and saved her out of that past. And Elijah's God is not, as is in her idea right now, 
must be in her idea right now. Elijah's God is not like a cat who plays with his prey for a little while and pretends like he's going to let it live. And then when he gets bored with it, he suddenly gobbles it up. Elijah knows that his God cares and his God loves and he doesn't understand what happens either but he still trusts his trust goes so deep that it goes as deep as Abraham's did when he was called to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice on the altar who could understand that he's the son of promise but his his faith went so deep that he trusted that God would be able to raise him from the dead if he required him to actually slay his son. So Abraham's trust went so far as to believe that God could resurrect the dead, even though it never happened before in the history of the world, as Scripture records it. And you see, even and here, even though it still never happened before in the history of the world, as scripture records that history, Elijah believes that God is also able to raise the dead. Unlike the widow, his response, his first response is one of prayer. So you sense the faith of Elijah, though he struggles deeply too, for him, the story's not over. All cannot be lost. He knows his God too well. Then he involves her, secondly. Look at how he involves her in his hope. He doesn't just grab the son. He doesn't get angry with her, lash out back at her, and tell her, well, you'd be dead and in the grave already if I hadn't come into your house. No. He gently asks her, please give me your son. He wants to involve her in an act, which is really a fledgling act of faith again. Give that son over to me. By implication, give your dead son over to my God. And then he gently takes the son from her arms and takes the son up to the room in order to pray. She does it. She lets him go. She doesn't hold on. She says, doesn't say no way. Get away from me. No, she lets him go. And what you see here is a smoldering trust that still exists. And what does God say about a smoldering trust? He says the smoldering flax he will not quench. And the bruised reed he will not crush. By God's grace, her little faith survives. As every Christian's faith must even in painful providences, because God himself keeps that faith alive. And as you see further on, and we're not going to explore that fully now, but we'll just touch on it now as we end. It is in meeting, it is in meeting the God of resurrection power and life that her own life and hope and future, along with her son's, is Restored. How about us? We haven't seen somebody raised from the dead. Someday we will. We're going to see ourselves raised from the dead and everybody else around us. But we haven't seen that yet. But remember this. You and I have met the God of resurrection power.
and life in a way and in a measure that Elijah, neither Elijah nor this widow ever did while they walked the face of the earth. You have confronted the reality of death, not just at the grave of your loved one, as I have too, and so many of us have. But we've confronted the reality of death, of suffering, of the curse, the misery, sin brings at the foot of the cross. We're out in Jesus' home. Where by faith you've seen him shed his blood and break his body and cry out, my God, why have you forsaken me? In love for you and for me as he delivered us from the curse and the punishment our sins deserved. You see, you can't experience the glory of the resurrection and you can't experience the glory of the resurrected Savior unless you've confronted the reality and the pain and the suffering and the misery and the curse of sin as it's exemplified on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But when you have and you put your faith and trust in Him, God doesn't leave you at the cross. He brings you to the open tomb. We're ushered before the open tomb of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To the God of resurrection power. And we're ushered to the, before the incontrovertible testimony of over 500 brethren at once and of the apostles and of Paul himself and the consistent testimony of the early Christians of the early church that this Jesus Christ has been raised. And truly is, for all who believe in him, in his own words, the resurrection and the life. If you keep that, and I have to tell myself that too, if we keep that front and center in our hearts and in our lives, then you and I will be able to face even the most painful providences in a way that will not destroy but will strengthen our character by suffering and will cause us to be able to glorify the God who loves us. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for its richness. Thank you for its relevance. Help us, Lord, to hold on to it. Lord, help us to have a, a deep and wide view of the Christian life, not a superficial, candy-coated view, as too many people offer that version of Christianity to attract people, but they only end up disappointed. Lord, help us to know that the richness of the gospel and its full-orbed embracement of all that life brings us through, including both blessed and painful providences, Lord, is a will never disappoint. Lord, we pray, apply your word to our hearts. Strengthen us by it in our day-to-day -day life. You know our struggles. You know the painful providences we may undergo right now. Lord, please bring us through. Help them not to alienate us from you. But Lord, help them to draw us.